Hey, good morning, HDC. How's it going? Hey, so glad to get to be with you today. Thank you very much uh, for that warm welcome. I know what many of you are thinking. How is it possible two weeks in a row? What is this? You're just gonna have to bear with me because you're stuck now. So it's gonna get real awkward if you get up and walk out. Um, Hey, uh, good morning to you over in Hesperia and Apple Valley as well. We're so glad that you're here with us as we wrap up this final week here in giving and receiving where we've been going through this beautiful story of Ruth. I hope it's been just an encouraging study for you. I hope that you feel uh, built up and encouraged uh, by the story. I think that's its purpose. What we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at chapter four and then we're really just gonna look at the broader significance of the story. Uh, three kind of ideas that we can see of the significance of the story to our lives and to the way that it even contributes to scripture. So I'm excited to dive into that with you. I uh, wanted to give you a quick update though. Last week I told you uh, that my pops, uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Todd Arnett uh, was not doing too well and was in the hospital. Wanted to give you some good news. He got discharged early last week. Uh, yeah, so that's good news. Um, he is on the mend. Uh, his oxygen levels are up. Uh, so all of that's been great. Uh, we're just trying to figure out now what it looks like for him to kind of come back slowly. And so we're trying to figure out what that right pace is, but everything is moving in the right direction. So we really thank you for your prayers. Uh, my family thanks you for that. Our church thanks you for that. Uh, and uh, we'll be looking forward to him being in his rightful spot here real soon. Uh, and for now, though, you've got to deal with me. So... Um, that's okay. Uh, okay, so Ruth chapter four, before we get into that, let me just give you a brief recap of where we've been so far. Chapter one, everything that can go wrong does go wrong. If you're a guy, you die. Okay, that's chapter one. Everything goes bad. Uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, and then her two daughter-in-laws, both of their husbands die, and so that forces them to kind of come back to Israel. Uh, one daughter-in-law leaves, but Ruth sticks it out with Naomi. She comes back home. Then they need food, and that leads Ruth to go to a field to start gleaning just to get some food for the family, and it just so happens that that field belongs to this guy named Boaz. And in chapter two, we see this masterclass of giving and receiving between Ruth and Boaz. Some of us very generous, we're good givers, that's kind of built into our DNA. Very few of us good receivers. We see such just great demonstration of what it looks like to receive, while Ruth still heaps honor on Boaz, but genuinely receives what he is giving her and doesn't treat it as though she's a one-woman show. She's like, no, I, I need help and I'll receive it. And then that generosity leads to a lot of hope for Naomi. And in chapter three last week, we looked at how that hope leads to a plan. And it was a wacky plan, uh, but a plan that led uh, Ruth proposing to Boaz in the middle of the night. So Boaz is like starry-eyed trying to figure out what's what. And Ruth is saying, would you marry me? And we're all excited because this is the perfect fit. Boaz loves Ruth. Ruth has great honor and respect for Boaz. This is like perfect chemistry, beautiful love story. This is a, an act of duty, yes, built into God's law, this idea of a guardian or a kinsman redeemer, depending on what translation you have. But so much more than duty, there is love and just this beautiful story that's taking place. But right at the end of it, we get this terrible news from Boaz. There is somebody closer. There is a closer relative who has first right to redeem both the land that Naomi is selling, but also marry Ruth. And our hearts kind of sink. And we see just this great demonstration, though, of Boaz really believing that God's ways are best. 
We see this beauty in his character that he is willing to incur loss to follow God's ways. We talked about last week, man, how many of us, when it comes to a marriage proposal, would put that on the line where it could be shaky or it could go a different way. Man, so many of us, we're gonna chase that down. We're gonna lock that situation down so quickly. But Boaz allows it to be kind of left up in the air because he's gotta go deal with it with this relative. And so that's where we're gonna pick up today as Boaz goes and finds this relative. They're gonna sort this out. And uh, we've got some notes there for you, uh, but what I want you to know is we're just gonna go through all of chapter four, then I'm gonna get to the notes. So if you start feeling anxious, like, oh my gosh, he hasn't even gotten to a blank yet. Is this an 80 minute sermon? It's not, okay? So just ride with me. We're gonna go through chapter four uh, and then we'll get into it from there. So here we go, let's dive in. Chapter four, verse one, it says this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So just as this relative was coming along, Boaz sees him at the gate. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Most of us wouldn't know, but the, the town gate, that's where serious business was done for ancient Israel, okay? So as Boaz sees his family member coming by, he's probably just on his way to work or something like that. As he sees this relative who has the right to redeem Ruth and Naomi before Boaz, he sees him coming by and he says, sit down. This guy wouldn't have just been like, oh, Boaz wants to hang out, he wants to talk. They're at the town gate. The moment he says, sit down, it's like, legal proceedings are about to happen. Like it's jury summons, right? Like many of us, you're, you're like, oh shoot. Okay, now I gotta figure out my plans, right? Like it's like right there in that moment. You sit down, we're gonna talk. We're gonna deal with some legal proceedings. These elders, these 10 elders, they're gonna function as the jury, right? So this relative was just walking to work. He gets court summons and he's like, am I getting sued? Like what's happening, right? Like he's feeling antsy already because this is only for serious business that this kind of stuff happens. You've got these elders, they're gonna serve as the jury. They're gonna kind of codify the situation and make sure that it pro progresses legally. Uh, but then you're going to have Boaz and this guy and Boaz is going to kind of bring a case to him, right? So this is all like very serious stuff. Boaz escalates it really, really quickly here. So we're at the town gate. The elders are watching. And then Boaz says this. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will not redeem it, or if you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Okay, so here's the situation. There's more people there now, right? Because this is court, right? So for some of us who are a little nosier than others, you would see two guys sitting at the town gate, 10 elders there, you'd be like, hmm, I'm gonna just go check this out, see what's going on. So a crowd is beginning to form. And Boaz says, hey, I wanted you to know Naomi is selling her land. And it's your duty as a family member, remember we've been talking about this thing that was woven into God's law, this idea of a guardian redeemer, that a, that a family relative, if you came on hard times and you needed to sell your land, that they would be the first people to buy that land so as to maintain that land continuing in the family lines. This goes all the way back to when Israel kind of marked out their different plots of land for the different tribes of Israel. Uh, and so the idea was we're gonna maintain what those are. 
uh, from the very beginning. We're going to continue those things. And so it would be a family member's duty to buy back this land if it came up for sale for whatever reason. And so Boaz presents the case to him. Hey, I thought you should know this is what's going on. And then he says, I will redeem it. And if you're sitting here thinking like, yes, problem solved. Welcome to your first week here in the book of Ruth. We don't want this at all. We don't like this guy. We want Ruth to be with Boaz. We know how the story should go. We're all sitting here saying, boo, right? If we were watching, this is not, the moment he says, I will redeem it, like you've just got to imagine Boaz's heart sinks a little bit. This is like, this is the woman that he wants to marry. If this guy redeems this land, he's not gonna be able to marry Ruth. And we already know from chapter three, Boaz is an older guy. It's not like options abound in this season of life for Boaz. And so you've got to imagine the moment that his relative says, I will redeem it, his heart just sinks. And us as the readers do the same. We're like, no, this is not at all what we wanted to see. But for his relative, it's a no brainer. As long as his relative could financially afford this plot of land, then it's a no-brainer because he's going to grow his, his estate, right? His estate's gonna get bigger. His earning potential is gonna go up. It, it all makes total sense. Like, why would you not? All he's gonna be entitled to is just to make sure that he takes care of Naomi until she dies. That's it, right? That's a pretty okay deal for him. And then he just gets to fold in this property into his estate. And so right now he's thinking, I'm glad I'm the closest relative to Naomi. Like, this is a win-win. But Boaz, is, he's clever. He's a little sneakier, okay? So he's presented, Naomi's selling the land, but oh, I forgot to mention one thing. Boaz helps him understand this. Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Stress on Ruth the foreigner. Just so you know, like Boaz is trying to make this seem like a raw deal for this guy. He loves Ruth, he wants to be with Ruth, but he's like, just so you know, when you get this land, you're also going to acquire this foreign woman that comes along with it, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the property, or, or maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Oh, a little sigh of relief for us. Why, why can't he do it though, right? You might be questioning like, what, what is so different about Ruth being factored into the situation? See, here's what would happen with Ruth being factored into the situation. If it's just Naomi, he just takes care of this older lady who's a widow until she dies and then he just folds this property into his estate and nobody can touch it. But when you factor Ruth into the conversation, well now his duty is not just to buy the land, but it's also to marry Ruth, to try to continue the bloodline of Elimelech. And if he would do that successfully and they would have a son, then he would just have to give that property right back to that son, earning nothing. So there is a high, high chance that he is going to pay a ton of money to get some land, and then he is going to lose out on that investment entirely. It's like if I was selling you my house and you were like, great, I'll buy it. And then we flipped a coin. And if it's tails, you get to keep the house. But if it's heads, I get the house back for free. And also you have to pay for my living expenses. I don't know that you would be like, pick me, Jackson, let's do that deal. I would, I'm in, okay? But I don't know that you would, because you'd be looking at that like, on just a coin flip, on just a chance that a son comes from him being married to Ruth, he loses everything. 
What this does is it heightens for us our understanding of the deep, deep generosity of Boaz, seeing how much he was willing to lose, how much he was willing to offer to go get Ruth, to go protect and provide for Ruth and Naomi in their very real needs. And so though there is a sense of selfishness and stinginess from this relative, you could understand why. That would be a high level. Like you've got to think in your head numbers for buying property. That would be a high level of investment for the potential to lose out on it completely, right? So of course he's out. And as he backs out, Boaz gets to step in. This is what happens in verse seven. It says, now in earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. This is actually kind of a a cool little verse. This is because when the author was writing this, this custom had fallen out of practice. So it's a lot of times how when you hear somebody preaching here on a weekend, they'll tell you like, oh, you might not know this, but this is an Israelite custom. This is what the author's doing. Like, hey, you probably don't know this at the time that they're writing it. But what, how we used to do things is somebody would take off their sandal in this kind of exchange. So they're just explaining what's about to happen. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal, taking part in that uh, ancient Jewish tradition. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malhan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malhan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. We all cheer, right? Like it's, this has gone exactly the way that we hoped it could go. It's that beautiful scene in a movie. Like it's like a courtroom scene in a movie where just all justice happens and everything goes right. And there's just kind of cheering in the courtroom. Papers are flying. The judge bangs his gavel. And it's like, it's, it's happened, right? And, and this is what the elders say in response to kind of codify this situation. Then the elders and all the nosy people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have upstanding in Ephrathath and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Here's kind of some interesting names that get thrown out there in this process. First, you have Rachel and Leah. As the elders are saying, by the way, they're like, yes, we we seal this. This is legal. This is happening. Boom, you're married to Ruth. You get the property, all of that stuff, right? So they seal what's happening, but then they begin to kind of heap blessing upon the situation. And they say, would Ruth, who's coming into your home, would she be like Rachel and Leah? Two women who are revered in in ancient Israelite culture because these are the women who birthed the the 12 tribes of Israel. Through them come these 12 tribes of Israel. And and I don't know if you've read that story or are familiar with the situation, but it's really interesting. They're both married to Jacob. They have a lot of competition about who can bear the most sons. And Rachel, whom Jacob loves so, so deeply, she battles barrenness and infertility through most of that story. And then Leah has kind of her bouts with it as well. And, and what the elders know about Ruth, that this whole community would have known pretty quickly about Ruth. It's, it's a really small detail, but if you go back to chapter one, you'll notice it. When we're first introduced to Ruth, she marries Malhan, and then they're together for 10 years. 
and they have no kid. This would not be an intentional decision in ancient times. This would have been barrenness and infertility on the part of Ruth. And so what the elders are well aware of is that Ruth has battled with infertility and barrenness. And they're saying, man, the way that the Lord provided for Rachel and Leah, faced with the same adversity, the same difficulties, would the Lord provide like that for you? Would the Lord provide like that for Ruth? You see, I I think it's an interesting theme that runs through the Old Testament. You'll notice it as, as you kind of read large sections of it. You'll see this really interesting theme where uh, infertility and barrenness becomes kind of this crucible of faith, where great women of faith are, are made in the Old Testament. And then generally, their offspring have insane significance as well that comes out of that situation. And so in just the same way, they're saying, man, we know what Ruth's story has been. And by the way, would you notice, even though we're all cheering, Ruth and Boaz finally married, we're not out of the woods yet. Elimelech's line is not guaranteed to continue given that Ruth has already, in a previous marriage with a husband who died, she's already not been able to conceive over 10 years. So we're not quite out of the woods yet here, even though things are most of the way there. And the elders are heaping blessing upon this situation. And they're saying, man, would the Lord provide for Ruth in the way that he's provided for Rachel and Leah? In Genesis, also, we see the story of Judah and Tamar. And what's interesting is their son's name is Perez, and he is actually an ancestor of Boaz. So he's connected. Apparently, they've got something with disease in that family. They just dig them, okay? But Perez was an ancestor of Boaz to come later. And so Boaz would have deep connection and really know that name, right? This is like a great, 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 great grandfather for him. And this situation with Judah and Tamar is so interesting because it's the guardian redeemer situation. Tamar was married to Judah's son. He dies. Then she's married to another one of his sons. That son dies. And then Judah is trying to avoid his responsibility to provide for Tamar. He's trying to avoid his responsibility to be a guardian redeemer to Tamar. So she kind of tricks him and deceives him into fulfilling his duty that he was running from. And even though Judah was running from the duty and the responsibility that was set before him, God still provided for Judah and Tamar. God still provided in way of a son named Perez. And so what the, what the elders are saying here is, how much more, if God provided for a situation like Judah and Perez, or Judah and Tamar through Perez, how much more would God provide for Ruth and Boaz, two people of noble character who have honored God through and through in this situation. Boaz, who is running towards responsibility, not running away from it. How much more would God bless this situation? And so all of the the town together is saying, man, would there just be blessing upon this marriage? Would God provide in crazy ways? And then we get kind of a, a jump forward. The author brings us forward. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. You just got to imagine the fulfillment of that moment for Ruth, right? We met her 11 years ago and she has been through so much in the last three chapters. There have been so many twists and turns to her story. And finally, 
a son. The women said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Just this beautiful end to the story. Sometimes we just like, don't get the full end to the story. It stops short. And we're like, I wonder what happened next. We see all of this kind of come to fulfillment, all of the things that we've been waiting for, hoping for, desiring in this story. We see them kind of all come to fruition here. And and you see, man, the best and highest compliment for Ruth is saved for very last. The, the women of the town say Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons. We've talked about in this series how male-centric this kind of culture was, how important it was for being provided for and cared for. And yet the women of the town say this daughter-in-law, this foreign daughter-in-law of Naomi is better to Naomi than seven sons would be for the way that she has loved Naomi, provided for her, and ultimately provided for her in way of a grandchild. And then they say a statement that every grandparent in the room knows so well. This grandchild will sustain you and give you life in your old age. How many grandparents in the room know that, huh? That experience. I'm watching that with my own parents this joy that comes from having a grandchild. And what's so cool about the way that the author structures the story is we begin the story in chapter one with Naomi's loss, and we end the story in chapter four with Naomi's gain. And and it's just this beautiful symmetry to the story as we see God, though not expressly honored, expressly named throughout much of the book, we see God just working and weaving through this entire story, bringing together something so beautiful at the very end of it. And and you might see a grandmother holding her grandson and think, aw, that's really sweet. And and it is. But if the story just stops there, you've kind of got to ask yourself, like, what's why include this story in scripture? What's the significance of the story? What's the significance of the story to our lives even as believers and people who wanna follow God? And, And that question might be prone to pop up for us. And what I think the author does so well is he just begins to zoom out at the very end. He wants us to know, hey, I get beautiful moment, grandma holding her grandson, but that's not the entire story. The first thing that I noticed about the significance of the story of Ruth is this. It's that it shows us that the path of God's plans in our lives are rarely direct. The story of Ruth shows us that the path of God's plans in our lives are rarely direct. Many of us may be prone to think, oh, well, I follow God. So because I follow God, because I go to church, because I read my Bible, my life will be easy or my life will be simple, or my life will be at a minimum straightforward at at base level. What we see in the story of Ruth is that that is not true at all. We see incredible people of character, incredible people of obedience to God and his ways and his plans, 
But look at all of the twists and turns that take place in this story. It's famine that leads them away from Israel. How many of us would have wished for famine in our story? None of us. It's then immense loss, loss of three family members that leads them back home. How many of us would want to lose three family members? None of us would write that story. And then it's needing food, like desperately needing food. How many of us would want to be in that situation? None of us. It's that that then leads Ruth to Boaz's field. That field presents an opportunity for generosity. That generosity sparks a plan. That plan is foiled, it seems, by a closer relative. That closer relative backs away from his responsibility, allowing Boaz to marry a barren widow. That barren widow conceives, has a son. I I mean, how many times in your life have you said, it's not how I would have written it, It's not how I would have planned it, but looking back, I wouldn't change anything. How how many times have you said that? We say that so often. It's not the way I would have chosen, but I, I wouldn't change a single thing about it. You see, what's interesting is we're great people of faith when we look backwards. We look backwards and say, oh man, God was working through that situation. I I wouldn't change a single thing about it. But, but the real test and the real testimony to the people that we do life with on a regular basis is can you say that while you're in the middle of it? Can you say that while it seems hopeless, while it seems like there is absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel? In, in preparing for this, I, I read a great statement by John Piper. He said, if we would just stay silent long enough, we would find all of our complaints against God to be proven untrue. Do you think about that? If we would just shut our mouths and trust that the same God that did that back then is providing for me now, that he will be faithful. If we would just be quiet long enough, you would see every complaint that you have against God proven untrue. How beautiful an idea is that? And and that is, I think, the question. That is the encouragement from the story of Ruth. It is not once the the baby's there, can Ruth look back and say, wow, God has been so faithful over these last 11 years. But at the loss of a husband, at the desperate need for food, can we be the people who say, God has been so faithful and I trust he will continue to be. When it feels like, when we're tempted to despair, when we're tempted to say, God has abandoned me, he's forgotten me, he's left me, can we be a people who say, no, I trust. I trust even now when I can't see it fully that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Can we trust that? Uh, Another kind of beautiful point of significance that I see throughout the entire story of Ruth is this. It's that it shows us that obedience in the mundane has a greater impact than we can initially see. Obedience in the mundane has a greater impact than we can initially see. I, I think this is helpful for us when you just boil down the story of Ruth. When you boil down the story of Ruth, it's as simple as this. Ruth cares for a widow, somebody in need. 
She goes and picks up food. She gets married and she has a baby. Those are kind of the four main highlights of the story of Ruth. She cares for somebody in need. She picks up food. She gets married. She has a baby. No insult to Ruth, but those are pretty ordinary, everyday things. You, you wouldn't look at that and say like, wow, what a woman of faith. This is happening, by the way, at the same time as the period of the judges. If you've read Judges, you see a bunch of crazy stuff happen. As you're reading it, you see like Samson do these crazy things, Gideon do these crazy things, Deborah do these crazy things. And you might read through the book of Judges and say, wow, these are valiant characters of faith. They're doing insane things for God. And meanwhile, Ruth is just caring for a widow, picking up food, getting married and having a baby. But as the author zooms out for us, to begin to help us a little bit understand the significance of this. The author zooms out as far as they can. They don't even know at this point. But the author zooms out enough to show us that Ruth will play a significant instrumental role in bringing in the single greatest historical king of Israel, King David. You, you might not know that in your Bibles as you're reading and you're like, okay, so you've got Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, and like, cool. David is like one of the primary figures in the Old Testament, one of the most significant biblical figures. And so as, as the women of the town are saying, would this redeemer, would what comes out of this situation be made famous in Israel? They're right. Because this ushers in the kingdom, like this ushers in the king who, who is going to be such a great king for the nation of Israel. Like the scope and scale of Ruth's obedience goes so far beyond what she could have ever hoped or dreamed of. This is a foreigner to the people of God and she is going to bring in the great leader of the people of God in the Old Testament. Like do the math there. This is so much bigger than she could have ever known. So much bigger than she could have ever seen. Not for a second would she or Boaz or Naomi have said, you know, I think something pretty crazy is coming out of this situation. They're just like, oh God, thank you so much for Obed. This is beautiful. And they think that they just kind of live pretty ordinary lives. And this is such a great story for rooms today full of people who feel incredibly ordinary. It is not about being special and doing special crazy things for God. It is about being or faithful in the ordinary things. And in your faithfulness to the ordinary things, there is a greater reaching impact than you could ever begin to know. It would really make us wonder this morning what the impact would be of you reading your Bible and praying every single morning, whether in front of your kids or with your kids. What would that impact look like? You won't see it today, you won't see it this week, but what does that impact look like 20 years from now? What is the far-reaching impact of that simple, daily, faithful obedience? There are some of you who have been praying over a situation for so long. You have prayer fatigue at this point. You're thinking, I, I, what else would I pray? I, I have prayed everything that I could pray over this situation. 
and I pray for it daily, I pray for it regularly, and I am not seeing any movement or change in the situation. And you would be tempted to give up, you'd be tempted to despair. And hopefully through the story of Ruth, you would be reminded that in that simple act of obedience, praying over a situation, there is a far greater reaching impact than you could ever know. You can take this to so many examples, integrity when nobody's looking. You're you're thinking nobody's gonna know, nobody's looking. I I could do this and, and nobody would have any idea. I could cut this corner and no one would know. Yet your integrity has a greater reaching impact than you could ever know your tithe on a monthly basis, a a greater impact than you could possibly ever know. You think, ah, everybody else is doing it. Like, why does God need my money too? A far greater reaching impact than you could ever know. So many different instances you could carry this to. And I think this really helps us in, in terms of the idea of obedience. So many of us, we think obedience is just about that particular situation that's in front of us in that particular moment. That if I obey God here, it's cool, I get a green check mark and then we just move forward. And it's like that situation is behind me. Not realizing that in your being faithful to that simple mundane thing that seems so insignificant, there are ripples that come from that that you could never know. That you could never see. You're gonna get to eternity and you're gonna be like, wow, just by being faithful to X or Y. God did all of this. I had no idea. Being faithful in the little, simple, mundane things has far greater impact than we could know. The the last thing and the thing that I think is the most supreme reason for the significance of the story of Ruth is this. It's that it foreshadows the way in which God would buy us back from the price and penalty of our sin. It foreshadows the way that God would buy us back from the price and penalty of our sin. Jesus is so clearly seen, so clearly foreshadowed throughout the story of Ruth. And then the Old Testament picks up a lot of this guardian redeemer language, uh, this idea. And what I wanna do is I, I wanna take you to just one example of that. This is all throughout the Old Testament, but, uh, or the New Testament. But if you would flip to Ephesians chapter one with me, What I wanna do is I I just wanna read this passage to you. And and as we read it, I want you to play guardian redeemer bingo, okay? Every time you see a phrase that is related to a guardian redeemer, what somebody would do in this situation where they would redeem and buy back, they would generate an heir so that they could give their inheritance to this person. I just want you to see these themes that are echoed throughout the New Testament. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Don't you see guardian redeemer language all over how the New Testament describes what Jesus has done for us? You see, our issue wasn't that we had a financial problem. It wasn't that we had just simply lost property. We had a spiritual problem. We had lost our right standing with God, our right relationship with God. As similar as what Jesus has done to us, done for us to what Boaz did for Ruth, the thing that differs greatly is Ruth never did any wrong to Boaz. You and I had severed our relationship from God, told him he was dead to us, that we wanted nothing to do with him. We had rebelled willfully against him. And in our incorrect standing with him, our spiritual lack, our spiritual need, it required more than just a financial payment. And so God, who already had an heir, who already had a -a one-of-a-kind son, would give of his own son, and his son would shed his blood on a cross so that through the payment of his blood, you and I could be bought back, not just to serve in his kingdom, not just to be subjects, but be bought back into the household of God to become sons and daughters of the Most High, so that we would become co-heirs with Christ and share in all of the riches of the blessing that he rightfully deserves. Glory be to God for what he has done for you and for me. Amen? Amen. You see, this story is so beautiful because in all of the subtleties, as we see all of this love and all of this generosity, it foreshadows a love that would be so much greater, a generosity that would be so much more, that in our need, our great, deep spiritual need, that Jesus would step in take our place and buy our freedom back for us. Thank you, Jesus. You see, it's in a season like this, man, it's just so perfect as we reflect on the things that we're thankful for this past week. How could we not reflect on our gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us? The way he has bought us back, redeemed us when we were hopeless. This is not a story of you working your way back into favor with God. This is not a story of you earning little bits and pieces by the good things that you can do. This is a story of you being an incredible, deep need that you could not fix on your own. And our gracious, loving Father saw your need, saw my need, and he sent his one-of-a-kind son to die for us in our place so that we could enjoy eternity in his household. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I I hope that this story in Ruth, I hope it encourages you, encourages you to see that though there might be some twists and turns in your story currently, 
that that's normal. That's part of life with God. The path of his plans rarely direct in our lives. I, I hope that it encourages you to lean into obedience, even in the mundane things, even in the small things. And I hope most of all, it just reaffirms, reestablishes a great, great gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that in your grace, in your love for us, you saw our need and you stepped in. You, you paid a price that we could never pay so that we could enjoy peace with you. We could enjoy being right with you. And if you're here this morning in any of our rooms and you would look at your life and you would say, man, I, I have not responded to that great grace and generosity that God has shown in the gospel. The, the beautiful thing, the thing that feels like, how could this even be, is that it is so incredibly simple to respond to it. It's just A, admit that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is that perfect, one-of-a-kind Savior, the only one available, who, who shed his blood on a cross for you and for me to buy us back from the wages of our sin. And C, choose. Choose to follow him with the rest of your life, submitting to him as a child of God. If you'd pray that prayer today, that's it, you're a child of God. You, you belong to his household, you belong to his family. And I pray that not another moment would go by before you pray that prayer. And Lord, for the rest of us, as we seek to obey you in the mundane things, Lord, as we seek to discern your will in the midst of things that feel complicated in your plans for us. Um, and Lord, as we reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, we just thank you for this great, powerful short book in the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you for the way it's encouraged us. We pray that we would live more faithfully and God-honoringly uh, in the way that we go about our lives. And Lord, we thank you most of all for the precious, precious gift of Jesus. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.